My name is Matt Moran. If you've been here the last three weeks, you know that we've been talking about what does membership mean in the life of Seven Mile Road? What does it mean to love this local church? So we talked about what it looks like to submit to the care and discipline of the church, and we talked about what it looks like to gather for Lord's Day worship. Today, I'm going to preach to you about what it means to love the church's sons and daughters. In other words, and I don't mean necessarily the littlest children of this church, but in other words, if God is our father and the church is our mother, what does it mean to live out that family identity by loving the people in the church? And I just used a word that some of you love and some of you hate. So let me just say out front, um, some of us really love like the New Testament metaphors for the church, like body, household, family. We love those words, right? Because we like the warmth and the comfort, the familiarity, the closeness that those words suggest. But then some of you actually get a little bit freaked out by those metaphors because you realize the mutuality and the messiness and the loyalties and the new obligations that those words actually imply. And then some of you are also like, that's just, that's just sentimental church talk, family. I don't even know half the people in this place. So in light of that, in light of those kind of, those things going on, uh, here's our question today. What does it look like? What does it look like to love the people of this church? And what does that specifically look like here at Seven Mile Road? So pray with me. We're going to get into the text that we just read on the screen in Hebrews 10. Father, we need you to work by your Spirit and cause us to see and understand and treasure your Word. Pray that you, by your Spirit, would give me the ability to faithfully proclaim it and that each one of us in the fear of God would hear rightly and respond and obey. So help us to do that, please. Amen. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. In 2008, uh, Laurel and I were newly part of, this, uh, part of this church community. We were, at that time, living in an apartment um, on the campus of Gordon-Conwell in South Hamilton. I was working on my degree, and in December that year, kind of close to Christmas time, we were invited to a little church like Christmas party down in Medford at Kevin and Bridget Luce's apartment. So we were happy about that. It, it's like 35 minutes from Hamilton to Medford, right? So we didn't, have any, we didn't have any kids, and we were, gonna, we were looking forward to that night, and we got in our, our Jetta and started working our way down to Medford. Now remember, we're like newbies to this area, okay? So we just moved here. We were spending our time driving around Hamilton, Beverly, Medford. I mean, sorry, Hamilton, Beverly, Wenham, like those type of towns. So when we, we didn't understand Hamilton, Medford, it says 35 minutes on Google Maps, but we didn't really grasp the realities of things like rush hour, snow, the week before Christmas. It takes 35 minutes to get past the North Shore Mall. So, and I'm like you, I'm like a lot of you um, seemingly placid type of individuals. 
I don't get upset frequently, but there are certain things, like doctor's waiting rooms or screaming babies or the line at the Department of Motor Vehicles that have like this special capacity to raise my internal temperature. So as a result, by the time we reached the little split between 95 and 93, we had been driving for an hour and 45 minutes, and we had three problems. One was we were an hour late. Two, somewhere back around Linfield, I had lost my salvation. <laughs> and then three, I didn't want to be going to this party anymore because now I was just an angry sinner who didn't even want to be around people. So I was irritated and annoyed, frustrated, angry, just ready to turn the car around. Have you ever been there? Like, have you ever been with those problems, but you're also like, I can't, I cannot be with people right here. There's no way that's going to help. That's kind of what I thought. So I want you to hold that feeling of anger and frustration and isolation kind of in your mind right now as we get into this text. There's two exhortations here, two let us statements. These are exhortations from the writer to the church. And we're going to look at both of them, okay? The first one, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. So first, just that word us, let us. This is a word to a church, right? Not to an individual. Hold fast, right? That means to take hold, like with an iron grip. What are we actually hanging on to here? It says the confession of our hope. What's our hope? Our hope, the hope that the writer is referring to right now, is that Jesus has died, Jesus has risen, Jesus is coming again. Our hope, very simply, the gospel itself. And the writer says, hold fast to that hope. In other words, our grip on the hope of the gospel should be like Charlton Heston's grip on his rifle. It should be like iron, right? And we should hold fast without wavering. Why does the writer warn about wavering? Because we waver, right? I was joking about losing my salvation on the drive from Hamilton to Medford, but how many of us go to sleep like saints and wake up with like new ideas for sin? How many of us feel like there must be like some type of slow leak on our hearts because the affection that we have for Jesus seems to just dissipate so quickly? How many of us feel like, like I'm a Christian for like four and a half days of the week, but the rest of the time, I'm just, I'm just like emotionally, I'm not even there. I don't click. It doesn't click. How many of us feel like there are these moments when we understand the gospel and its implications for our lives with like crystal clarity? And then it's like hours later, I don't get it. I don't even get it. We're told to hold fast because holding fast to the confession of our hope is more than just like being able to simply recite a creedal statement. It's actually believing the gospel in all areas of your life. Actually believing the gospel in all areas of your life. So why do we hold fast? Because he who promised is faithful. All the words of God are yes and amen. God doesn't make any promises. 
that he doesn't deliver on. He's absolutely constant, faithful, dependable, utterly dependable. His words are true. His promises are sure. None, no one who ever waits on him will be ashamed. That's why we hold fast, because God is faithful. But how do we hold fast? If we all waver, how do we hold fast? Because dealing with that, dealing with this issue of wavering is really kind of like a description for what, for the entire process of discipleship. Moving from unbelief to belief in every area of your life. That's kind of what discipleship is. Moving from unbelief in the gospel to belief in every area. So how do we hold fast? How do we do that? Well, let me give you an illustration. Some of you know that I spent some of my teen years, parts of age 16 and 17, in a little town called Watersmeet, Michigan. It's in the very northern, upper portion of the peninsula of Michigan. It was part wilderness school, part um, like fundamentalist militia. And just, anyway, we were hiking through, we were hiking through the Porcupine Mountains one day on a fall day, when I was told that we were going to learn how to repel. So repelling, if you're not familiar with that term, is going down the face of a rock using a rope that's doubled around the person and fixed to a higher point. That's what repelling is. If you've ever repelled before, you know that it's a fun experience, providing you have the proper equipment and have some idea what you're doing. Otherwise, and I can testify to this, it is utter terror. And in this case, I didn't have proper equipment or training. But I followed orders without thinking too much about it, and I hooked up my carabiner and connected to the rope and started maneuvering down this cliff. And the way this piece of rock worked is that we went down the first 100 feet or so at kind of like a 45-degree angle. So if you can picture this, there's a rope fixed up here, and we're moving down it at about a 45-degree angle for about 100 feet, and then the last 100 feet were just like a sheer drop off the cliff. I was attached to the rope, and the rope was positioned on something called an edge protection. So right here at the point where the cliff, the cliff gets sharp, there's a softer surface called an edge protection that's placed underneath the rope, where the rope is, so that when the rope rubs against the cliff, it doesn't just chafe and fall apart, but that it has the softer surface un- underneath it. Otherwise, if the rope just starts rubbing against the rock, the fibers of the rope are going to start to tear apart. So I made it down kind of slowly, navigating the first 100 feet, until I got to that vertical drop. And that's when I realized that the rope had slipped. It was just kind of chafing against the side of the rock. So I stopped there, kind of looking up, dangling off the side of the cliff, looking up at the guy at the fixed point above, kind of looking down, holding on to my rope. And I shouted up at him, like, hey, hey, the rope slipped. He looked down at me, like, you're good. (laughs) So I paused for a second and just looked up and was like, the rope slipped. And he looked down at me, he just said, don't let go. (laughs) 
how do we hold fast, right? How do we hold fast without wavering? Well, if you took the advice of the guy above me, the answer is just grip on. Just generate the willpower, right? Hang on. Don't let go. You can do it. I took one last look at that rope and decided that the longer I waited, the sooner it was going to tear. So I just rappelled down the cliff about as fast as humanly possible, about as ungracefully as anyone ever has. And when my boots hit the ground, it just reverberated in the back of my brain. Do you think I've ever rappelled again? Do you think I came away from that experience thinking like, that was fun? I enjoyed myself. Let's do that again. No, I was on my own. I didn't know what I was doing, and I almost killed myself. Hold fast to the confession of our hope is what the writer says. The why is because God is faithful. But how do we do it? Right? There has to be a better way, a better method than just tightening our grip. Right? I think probably a lot of us have tried that before. We just tighten up or we're like, Maybe we stand and we slip and we're like, I will do better next time. And then we know, no, we probably won't. There has to be a better method than that. So we're going to get to that how, but first there's a second exhortation, another let us. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. This phrase, stir up, literally means to provoke. The word is actually often used in the Bible to convey like an emotional response, some sort of stimulation towards anger or disagreement. The idea is to get stirred up or provoked or riled up. So let me ask you this. Who are the people that you actually know how to provoke? If you asked me to provoke a stranger, I would be kind of at a loss. Like, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to just sneak up on them? Should I just poke them in the back? Should I just say something obnoxious and rude? How would you provoke someone you don't know? But what if, I knew, what if I knew the person well? Then I could provoke them, right? If I really knew them? There used to be a CD that I really liked, and it had a song where about halfway through, the electric guitarist switched keys, and he actually soloed in this completely different key than what the rest of the band was playing. So I thought it was like kind of cool and creative, and we were driving one day, and I played the song for Laurel. And she was like, it's terrible. <laughs> so after that, when I drove alone by myself, I would play that song. And then when I parked the car, I would kind of let the song run right up to that point, right up to where the electric guitar solo started. And then I'd turn off the car, so the next time when Laurel got in, the song would start right up. So what do you think happened? provocation, right? We can provoke the people that we know and love, right? So if I wanted to provoke Glenn Cruz, I would be like, you know, I've been thinking about it a lot, and I really think for all his faults, Bill Clinton was a great president. If I said that, provocation, right? If I wanted to provoke Matt Cruz, I would be like, you know, basketball is just a game, it's not a metaphor for life. We have, we have the capacity, right, to provoke the people that we know and love, the people that we're actually in relationship with. And what the writer is talking about is actually a positive provocation, a stirring up towards love and towards good works. 
Let me switch this. This is driving me crazy. Um, how does that actually happen? Scripture says, let us consider how to stir up one another. Think about those words, let us consider. I found those words to be really challenging, thinking about that this week. This has become kind of a point of conviction and repentance for me, this word consider. Because every week, every early Monday morning, you can probably find me at the Starbucks on Main Street in Melrose. And during that time, I will be planning my upcoming week. I'll be considering, like, what are the ministry responsibilities that I have this week? What's on the calendar? Who are the people to meet with? What do I need to take care of around the house? What do my kids need? What's our financial status? And I give that time some careful attention, right? Planning the week ahead. But I realized, thinking about that this week, my weekly review, that practice, is essentially the time that I spend figuring out how to keep, like, the good ship Moran afloat above the water. I'm taking time to consider what I need and maybe what my family needs. But this text is saying to consider, give careful attention how to provoke others to love and good work. So when you think about your week or your day, are you thinking about that? What do we provoke each other towards? We provoke each other towards love and good works. Love and good works. And that's the type of phrase that we could easily kind of blow by and think, yeah, we should be the type of people that encourage each other to love people and do good things. But no, that's actually too shallow. That's kind of a weak understanding of what this passage is getting at. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, which Matt read earlier, says, by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This passage is saying that you have not been saved by yourself, and you have not been saved for yourself. In other words, peace and comfort is not the goal. There is a reason we've not yet been whisked away to be with Jesus. We are going there, we're headed there, but this passage is saying there are good works yet to be done. And we stir, each up, we stir each other up to love, to show off the love of Jesus, and to do good works, to do the works that we've actually been created for, that have been plotted beforehand by Jesus. Okay, so now you might be like, okay, I'm not about to go to Africa or cure, cure malaria or solve any crazy social ill. I don't have anything that seems all that remarkably good to do. Whether that's the case or not, really, scripturally speaking, good works include everything that we do in faith. And what I mean by that is when we hold fast to the confession of our hope, when we allow belief in the gospel to shape every area of our life, then the things that we do become good works. It could be caring for children, it could be preparing a meal, it could be going to work, it could be shoveling snow, it could be sharing your faith, it could be listening to your neighbor describe her recent trip to the hospital. Those things are all good works if they are done in faith, in light of the confession of our hope. 
Okay. So the scriptures told us, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. That's one, let us. And then two, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I hope that you see the whys behind these let us exhortations. There's a why behind each one. We hold fast because God is faithful, and we stir each other up because God has planned good works for us to do. But we haven't really answered the how yet, and that's how I want to conclude. The how is actually right in the text. This last verse says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So meeting together is actually the ground underneath both those let us exhortations. Meeting together is the ground of fulfilling those exhortations. A lot of people hear that not neglecting to meet together, and they think that means don't skip too many Sundays. That's not really like the full scope of what the writer's talking about. Because I think we know it is possible to meet together Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and despite all the amazing covenantal realities of gathered worship, there is still not necessarily love for one another, and there are not necessarily good works. Hebrews here is talking about something much bigger than that. We're talking about a community that is actually sharing life together and living out the mission of God. Meeting together is the ground underneath gospel faithfulness and under good works. We're warned, right? Hold fast without wavering. The antidote for wavering is this community centered on the gospel. We're exhorted, stir each each other up to love and good works. How's that going to happen? By meeting together. The community that the writer's envisioning right here is one that's consistent, ongoing, encouraging, other-centered, pointing towards the outward nature of our salvation. That's the antidote, right, for wavering, for lethargy, for isolation, for discouragement. It's the community that doesn't neglect meeting together. So let me ask you this. Are you eagerly pursuing meeting together? Here's what that might look like. Here's what it would look like. Yes, it would include gathering on Sunday for Lord's Day worship. I think it would also include a heart attitude that says, God in his wisdom has sovereignly placed me in relationship with these people around me. That actually means something. It would look like gladly giving yourself to relationships with the people in the church. So let me ask you that. Is that you? Does that describe you? Or do you prefer isolation or think when it gets serious, I really can't handle other people, right? Maybe you like people to a certain point, but actually in reality you prefer isolation and autonomy. You like community to the point that it's convenient for you. That's a very, that's just like, the, the writer says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. That's always going to be prevalent, that mindset that like, bottom line, I kind of need to be by myself and make my own calls, as is the habit of some. Do you love meeting together? Do you pursue it? So I'm going to finish right now with two very simple, very textual points of application. Okay? First, (coughs) this text calls us to consider 
how to stir up one another to love and good works. Consider, you may not be as obsessive as me. You may not have a scheduled weekly time where you think about, um, you plot out everything that's going to be upcoming. But regardless of your patterns for planning, whether you're spontaneous or a big planner, consider, in other words, give careful attention. It might start as simply as saying, Spirit, who can I encourage this week? This week, when you pray for the individuals in your home, in your gospel community, in your church, ask the Spirit to show you who to encourage, who to provoke towards love and good works. That could be as simple as a note or a text message. That could be as simple as a very short conversation. But it comes from a heart that says, God has placed me in relationship with these people. So think about this for a second. If you are born again by the Spirit, you belong to Jesus, then Ephesians says you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. But now think about like the people actually in this room the people who are going to be part of this little outpost of the kingdom of God here in Melrose. Each one of us, each one of us have good works to do which God has prepared beforehand. What if we were actually just as committed to seeing that work get done corporately and communally as we were to our own personal destinies? Are you following me? Like, what if we were just as committed to seeing those good works get accomplished in each other's lives as in our own. What if that was like the way this community operated, even whether it's in a large-scale sense or in the gospel community? How many people, if that was what we thought and believed and encouraged one another and prayed towards, how many people would hear the good news that Jesus came to save sinners? How many people would be discipled? How many children would grow up in the grace and the grammar of the gospel? How much money would we give away? How many, how many people would get served in our neighborhoods if we believed that God has created good works for each one of us to do and we corporately took the responsibility to encourage each other towards that? Consider, consider. Secondly, and finally, this text tells us that our encouragement should be all the more as you see the day drawing near. Jesus is actually returning as king and as judge. So that's unbelievable news for those of us who hope in the death of Jesus and find atonement in his death and resurrection. The church is really a community that only makes sense in light of that day. And we don't talk a lot about that. Sometimes I feel like in our desire to not be in like the left-behind crowd or not to be in the crazy radio TV uh, camp where people are predicting days and seasons, our response is instead to kind of be like, oh, it's unclear, let's forget all about it. Let me say this clearly. That day is drawing near. There is a coming day where Jesus will return and judge. It's drawing near near. And for those of us who hope in the gospel, it's a day to eagerly anticipate. 
This Friday, this past Friday, we hosted a gathering here at the building for um, local pastors and church planners. And we do this every three months or so. Um, and it's really just like a simple time for pastors in the greater Boston area to pray for each other, to converse a little bit, hear how each other is doing. So Cruz and I were in a conversation with a, with a brother down in, uh, in the Boston area, and we were giving him like kind of a 30-second snapshot of life at Seven Mile Road. We were explaining, yeah, things are going great in Seven Mile Philly. Things are going great in Wakefield. We're excited about our church plan in Malden. We're looking forward to see what, seeing what's going to happen here in Melrose. But really, like, ask us again in a couple of years. There's a lot we're still figuring out, right? Logistically, strategically, financially, there's a lot going on. We're trying to follow God. We're trying to walk with him in faith, but, like, <laughs> we'll keep you posted, right? And this, this brother just listened, and at the end, he just kind of shrugged his shoulders like that and was like, well... What do you have to lose? And my first thought was, that's a very flippant answer. That's easy for you to say. I could think of a lot. I could think of a lot that we have to lose. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized, like, what a great answer that was. Because we love, right, we all love peace. We love comfort. We love predictability. We get nervous when it's threatened. I know that I do. But this text says, let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We have permission to do that with each other. In other words, we as followers of Jesus believe together that a day is coming that's going to put everything into context. Everything. The life of of the one who hopes in the gospel, the life of the church that clings to to the gospel, the life of the community shaped by the gospel, should really only be understandable in light of that day. So encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. My hope, what I'm praying for, is that the, the life of this church will only be understandable and explainable in light of that day. So pray with me. Jesus, we ask just real simply uh, that you would cause us to be people that don't waver, but that hold fast to the confession of our hope consider strategically and carefully how to stir each other up to love and good works and that live individually and together in light of your return. Pray that we would be faithful in that. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.